will begin with a reign of terror. A few murders here and there. Murders of great men, murders of little men. Just to show we make no distinction. To be walking up the stairs with a camera bag that belonged to a young woman that had her severed head in it. I would move heaven, hell, and anything in between to get to you. You wouldn't be safe anywhere if I was mad at you. Do you know what the most frightening thing in the world is? It's fear. I guess not. Only word was shot and left. <laughs> if it was a horrendous crime, why didn't I shoot them between the eyes, cut their penis off, stick it in their mouth, you know, do all kinds of gross stuff. Only word was shot and left, you know? Hello, everyone, and welcome to a new episode of Strange Talk Podcast. This Week in Crime. And so if you're new to the podcast, This Week in Crime is where I bring you interesting or weird or fucked up news articles from here or right around the world. And so I want to say thank you to Rocky the Collector because he sent me another bunch of interesting true crime stories or just weird news um, and so big thank you to Rocky the Collector. So Rocky the Collector, if you're listening to this episode, dude, you should like totally open up a, a museum of some sort with all the um, oddities and, and things that you collect. That would be actually a pretty fucking thing that you like a pretty cool thing to fucking do. I'm pretty sure you thought about it by now. But anyways, back to this episode. So yeah, uh, before we actually get into this week in crime and the news articles that Rocky the Collector so graciously provided, I want to read to you a fucking just a crazy case that I recently happened to just discover uh, when I was just late one night staying awake instead of going to bed uh, when I was just scrolling around on TikTok and my god it's like pretty fucking interesting I feel like I had like talked about it in a this week in crime episode before but I don't think I have it's just fucking interesting and just like you, you'll see what I mean and it, and it pertains to so well trigger warning it pertains to incest so if you're not comfortable with the talk of incest then this episode clearly isn't for you but um yeah so it talks about incest and it happens a lot more than i never fucking knew that it did it's fucking crazy but um the article that i found for this particular case it's from the new york post and it's titled how a reunion with birth parents led to incest and a murder suicide in Dover, New York, what started out as a joyful reunion of a young woman with her birth parents soon turned sour, then shocking, and finally deadly. A young woman named Katie married her birth father, had a baby with him, and after she decided to leave him, lost her life to him along with the lives of their child and her adopted father. All three were laid to rest this weekend in upstate New York, and this article was actually posted in, on April 22nd of 2018. So that's when they were actually laid to rest. And, but this is just an article about the case and it's just fucking crazy. So we're still in shock, said Shirley Mann, a neighbor of Katie's adopted parents in Dover. It's crazy. I don't know what else to say. It's horrible. Katie, whose last name was changed to Fusco at the time, had no idea before she moved in with Stephen Padell and his wife in August of 2016 that he had an explosive temper, a history of abusive behavior and owned at least Guns. In 1995, Stephen Pladell was 20 when he met a 15-year-old girl named Alyssa on the internet. 
She soon became pregnant and gave birth to a girl they named Denise. Elisa Padel told the Associated Press in an interview last week that they put the girl up for adoption when the child was only eight months old. They were young and poor, and she said, but she also believes Stephen Padel physically abused the baby. In her interview, she did not elaborate. It was so hard to give her up, Alyssa said, but I had to because I wanted her to live and be happy. For most of what was to be her short life, she was. So Tony Fusco and his wife, Kelly, adopted the girl, whom they renamed Katie, and raised her with their biological daughter in Dover, about 80 miles north of New York City. They had a very, very normal life, said Carrie Gould. Or I'm sorry, Gould. Kelly Fusco's brother. My nickname for Katie was Pac-Man. She was always eating, and she loved animals, and she was a vegetarian. Katie was an inspiring artist at Dover High School for, and she was known at Dover High School for drawing comic strips. She planned to attend college and pursue a career in digital advertising. A pen and something to draw on became a safe place for me, she wrote in a blog post. This is Katie writing in a blog post. Ink became my weapon against rules and regulations. To be short, for me, a life without art is no life at all. After turning 18 in January 2016, Katie, who Gold said had been told she was adopted, found her birth parents and messaged them. The, Patel, the Bedells were happy to reunite with her. So what essentially happened was Katie, as she grew older, she was curious after she found out by her adopted parents that she was adopted. She kind of was curious and wanted to find out who her biological parents were. So she set out to find them. And so instead of going to college in August of 2016, Katie moved in with the Bedells in Henrico County, Virginia that month. Tony and Kelly Fusco were apprehensive, Gould said, but they thought Katie was old enough to make her own decisions and supported her. All was not well in the Padel home, however. Stephen and Alyssa had already decided to separate and were sleeping in separate rooms. Alyssa Padel said she had suffered emotional and verbal abuse by her husband for years. I was always on eggshells. Whatever his mood was, everybody knew, and that mood was often not happy. A lot of yelling, a lot of things smashed in the house, in front of our kids, she said. Alyssa Padel told Katie privately that Stephen Padel had abused her as a baby. Alyssa Padel told Katie privately that Stephen Padel had abused her as a baby and that a major reason for the adoption was her own safety. So she basically told Katie in secrecy, in, a, in, in private, that Katie, the reason why I gave you up for adoption was because your father, Stephen, would abuse you as a baby. You know, and I just wanted you to get out of there. So that's why I put you up for adoption. Alyssa Patel, uh, I'm sorry, Katie, according to Alyssa, didn't appear to be concerned. So she wasn't even like worried about like, oh shit, that's, you know, she didn't care. Stephen Patel's behavior changed after he met Katie. Alyssa Patel said he began wearing skinny jeans and form-fitting t-shirts. He shaved his beard and let his hair grow long. And about six weeks after Katie moved in, Stephen Patel one night slept on the floor in her room. It immediately concerned Alyssa. After he did it again the next night, she confronted him. He said it was none of her business and stormed out of the house with Katie. Alyssa Padel finally moved out in November of 2016, and she shared custody of the two children with Stephen Padel. In May of 2017, she learned from her 11-year-old daughter's journal of the incestuous relationship and Katie's pregnancy. So Alyssa was just kind of doing like she just had like an intuition and she just decided to look in Katie's journal and that's where she found out that her dad Katie and her biological father began 
having sex with each other because they thought they were in love. Her daughter wrote that she and her sister were told by Stephen Padel to refer to Katie as their stepmother. I started to become hysterical and I called him, she said. This is Alyssa speaking. I said, is Katie pregnant with your baby? He just said, I thought you knew. We're in love. I started screaming, she said. I was just cursing him out. How could you? You're sick. She's a child. And she's not just a child. She's his child. She came from him. Then she called the police. So on July 20th of 2017, two months after his divorce from Alyssa was finalized and amid the police investigation, Stephen Padel married Katie in Parkton, Maryland. So her father, Katie's father, biological father, decided to marry her. And the way they got away with that, because in, I think, almost every state other than Alabama, <laughs> you're, you're not, it's illegal to marry your child, your biological child. So what, what they did is they lied on their application saying they were unrelated, according to the records, the, the marriage license and everything. Katie's adopted parents posed for a photo. So this is where it gets even crazier. So Katie's adoptive parents, okay, the people that decided to raise Katie after she was given up for adoption and they adopted her, which are the Fuscos, okay? So it's Tony and Kelly Fusco. They actually went to the fucking wedding, okay? They went to the wedding and the reason in an interview when they asked them about this after all of this came out after Katie was murdered, they said in the interview, the reason why we went to, as, as strange as it seems, the reason why we went to the wedding was not because we supported the marriage, but we felt that we love her as, as our daughter. Like as if she came from us, we love her so much that we're not supporting the wedding, but we're simply supporting the decision and the fact that she's just our child. In a sense, that's what she said. But it's still crazy. It's still fucking crazy. So Tony and Kelly um, Fusco thought there was nothing they could do and had decided it was best to support Katie. Katie gave birth to Bennett, okay? So she gave birth to her fucking father's child. And they named the baby Bennett. On September 1st, she and Stephen moved to a house on a cul-de-sac in Nightdale, North Carolina, just east of Riley. But wedded bliss did not last long. They were arrested on incest charges in January. And a judge ordered them to not contact each other. And Stephen Padell's mother has custody of baby Bennett. Stephen Padell's lawyer, Rickman Friedman II, said there was never an allegation that Stephen Padell pressured Katie into a relationship. So he's basically just saying, well, uh, yeah, he is, you know, basically getting arrested for fucking his child. But I just want to come out and say that he didn't groom her into <laughs> this relationship, essentially. So this case is an 18 year old girl. OK, so, so Katie was 18 at the time when all of this happened. She's. So that's so that's why if it seemed confusing when uh, Stephen's wife, uh, Alyssa, said that she's still a child because she's 18. You're still a kid, though. You're still pretty young. So this case is an 18 year old girl who shows up at the doorstep of a 40 year old man who's going through difficult times with his wife. Friedman said they have a bond because they're biologically related, but they never knew each other before they had a sexual relationship. He was head over heels in love with her, so much so that that outweighed the issue of them being biologically related. So he's trying to make it sound like it's it's love, man. You know, <laughs> it's not it shouldn't be weird that that's his daughter. It's fucking love, man. 
So after the arrest, Katie moved back with Tony and Kelly Fusco, who declined to comment for this article. And so every Tuesday and Thursday, she would travel to her adopted grandmother's home in Waterbury, Connecticut. And on April 12th, a, a Thursday, Katie and Tony Fusco left the Dover home for Waterbury in a minivan nearby. Stephen Padell watched them leave, and surveillance video shows that minutes later in nearby New Milford, witnesses reported someone opening opening fire and Katie and Tony Fusco, 56 years old at the time. Okay. That's Katie's adoptive father who was in the vehicle with Katie were fatally shot. Stephen Padell was later found dead of a self-inflicted gunshot back in Dover. So her father, her biological father, Stephen, I don't know what exactly the motive was for it, but he just decided to follow Katie and her adopted father. They got into the vehicle and he followed them. And I don't know if they were parked or they were at a stoplight of some sort, but he, Stephen got out of the car and he opened fire on both Katie and her adopted father, killing them both. And then shortly after the New Milford shooting, which where is the shooting happened in New Milford, Stephen Padell's mother called 911 to report her son had told her he killed the baby. So he killed the baby that Katie and him had. I can't even believe this is happening, Stephen's mother told authorities. According to a 911 call transcript from which her name was redacted, her son, she said, was upset because Katie, by then just only 20 years old, had broken up with him. Police found the baby dead and alone in Katie and Stephen's home. Alyssa Padell struggles to make sense of it all. I'm grieving, I'm sad, I'm upset, she said, but I also want to have something good come out of this. If it's to get the truth out there and to open people's eyes to incest. So yeah, apparently that is, is it there, you know, when I decided to look up this case and share this case with you after I saw it on TikTok to find more about it, apparently, and I just typed, I, when I, I kind of just typed in the search bar of Google, uh, woman marries biological father and there's a bunch of other cases that have happened with children marrying their biological fathers or just having sexual relationships with them so that's fucking crazy and so i feel like in the future at some point that could be a whole other episode of just incestuous like fucking murder cases and stuff like that that happened but there's like a whole bunch of other ones but no this is the one that i just happened to just see on tiktok and I just had to share it with you because it's so fucking insane. So yeah, again, thank you to Rocky the Collector for sending me these fucking crazy news articles that I have for you. But let's get into the actual meat of it, which is this week in crime. And the first article is coming from NBCPhiladelphia.com. This one's called, titled actually, Naked Boy Found in Dog Cage Inside Philadelphia Home, Mom and a Man are charged. A man and a woman were both arrested and charged after a young boy was found naked inside a dog cage in a Philadelphia home while two young girls were found partially clothed in the rain in the backyard. The ordeal began around 1 p.m. Thursday when Hector Perez noticed two girls ages four and five standing in the rain partially clothed in the backyard of his neighbor's home alongside the 4200 block of Glenview Street. They have pampers on, Perez said. They have no shirts, they have no pants, they have no shoes, and they're screaming, it's raining, it's cold, they're screaming for their mother and their father. Perez called 911 and officers, officers arrived at the scene to find two girls. When responding, officers went inside the home. They also found a naked six-year-old boy locked inside of a dog cage. An elderly woman in a wheelchair was inside the home 
as well as along with a 40-year-old man who was upstairs. Police said they believe the man is a family member of the children, while the elderly woman is their grandmother or great-grandmother. That woman was later taken from the home in an ambulance around 6 p.m. Police were also met by another woman who told them she was the mother of at least one of the three children. The woman was taken to the special victims unit where she was interviewed by police. Police have said none of the children appeared to have been physically harmed. They were all taken to the hospital for an evaluation. Police also said two other children live at the home, though. They were at school when the officers had arrived. We don't know entirely everything that's going on here, Philadelphia Police Public Information Officer Eric Grip said. We have a long investigation ahead of us, but obviously we don't live in a world where under any situation whatsoever we should have a child inside of a cage or young children outside standing in the rain. Neighbors said the boy who was inside the cage has autism, though police haven't yet confirmed this. This has been an ongoing situation, Perez said. These kids have mental issues. Everybody in the neighborhood knows about it. Cops have been coming here on and off, and nothing has ever been done about it. So on Friday, the mother of a boy, a 30-year-old woman, as well as a 31-year-old man who lived inside the home were both arrested in the connection to the incident. They are both charged with endangering the welfare of a child and recklessly endangering a person. So yeah, that's pretty fucking crazy, man, that they would just lock a fucking boy up in a dog cage. I wonder what he was doing. But then again, the neighbor said... And I guess a lot of people of the neighborhood said that the boy had autism. So maybe he had severe autism. He didn't have high functioning autism. So they didn't want to fucking deal with him. But still, they should have fucking done something else other than just putting him in a dog kennel. So this next article that I have for you is kind of a really interesting one. It's not It's not really that, it's not anything particularly about a like murder. It's just simply about a sharply dressed Japanese man with a self-defense briefcase has made a living in night moving helping battered women disappear without a trace. So he essentially just helps women that are going through like domestic violence and they want to seek shelter and get out, but they can't necessarily do it because they're afraid of retaliation from their, their, their partner. This Japanese man will essentially set up almost like in a, a spy type fashion and figure out a way to help you escape your situation. So in 2021, about 80,000 people were reported missing in Japan. Of these... Johatsu Sha, I'm not sure if I pronounced that right, or evaporated people. So Johatsu Sha means evaporated people in Japanese. Many of them close chose to disappear because of debt, to escape domestic violence, or just to start over elsewhere. So that's essentially what this man does. He just helps you get out of the situation you're in and just makes you disappear. Iwabuchi's business is one of many that helps people, particularly abused women and victims of stalking disappear from society and travel to a safe place the scmp revealed in a documentary released on march of 19th but it is a job full of risk and danger he carries a discreet discreet black self-defense briefcase with him at all times which opens up into a shield with a layer of armor inside of it that's pretty cool he also travels with a retractable baton-like device which he says he uses for protection so this dude is essentially like a fucking he is like a fucking bodyguard. He's almost like um, Daredevil in a way because he has like that little baton. So night moving is sloppy and there's always trouble. I don't think a day goes by without trouble. Iwabuchi told, adding that he always assumes the worst will happen. He started his business 16 years ago after finding out that there was an increase in women facing domestic abuse who just couldn't run away. And he decided to step in and help them disappear. Around 90% of Iwabuchi's clients are women 
and about 10% are just men, Iwabuchi said. And now the number of people seeking to disappear is up to three times more than what it was before the COVID-19 pandemic, he added. The Los Angeles Times reported in 2003 that Yonagaya services can cost anywhere between $2,000 to $20,000 per job depending on the risk and the complexity of the extraction. So you'll be paying anywhere between $2,000 to $20,000 just depending on how difficult it is to make you disappear. In some cases, people helping with the escape may need to pose as window washers or tataami mat tradesmen to slip under the radar. Once they have evaporated, it is easy for these people to maintain anonymity and hide in plain sight in Japan, per a 2020 BBC report. Sociologist Hiroki Nakamori told the BBC that because privacy is highly valued in Japan, missing people can withdraw money from ATMs without detection, and police will not intervene unless there's another reason, like a crime or an accident. All the family can do is pay a lot for a private detective or just wait, and that's all. So yeah, that's that interesting article about a Japanese man who's essentially a fucking hero, and he just helps people that are just in dire situations. Uh, He says most commonly it's domestic violence situations or just people who are indebted to somebody, and he just helps you disappear. So that's I just thought that was pretty cool. So I thought uh, so. Thank you to Rocky, the collector, for sending me this article. And so the next one I have for you is Mississippi woman shoots husband dead on Facebook Live. A Mississippi woman allegedly fatally shot her husband. This article is coming from Newsweek. Uh, fatally shot her husband while she was live streaming on Facebook Live. Officers in Lowndes County, Lowndes County, I believe it's pronounced along the Mississippi-Alabama border, were alerted to a domestic violence call at 500 Green Tree Drive at about 7.42 a.m. on Saturday, March 25th. When Louds County Sheriff's Office police arrived, they arrested Kadijah Michelle Brown, 28, and charged her with murder after a, mound was, a, man, was found, a, mountain, a man was found dead inside her home. The 28-year-old victim who lived in the home with Brown died from a single gunshot wound and appeared as though they had been involved in an argument that turned physical. Officers added that the shooting was recorded on Facebook Live. LCSO Sheriff Eddie Hawkins said, There was a history of domestic violence between Brown and the victim. This was a tragic and senseless murder, and our thoughts and prayers go out to the family of the victim. Fortunately, Brown is in custody, and we look forward to the criminal justice system holding her accountable. So on a post shared by the local sheriff's department, the LCSO, on Sunday, it read the victim was pronounced dead at the scene and a 9mm handgun was recovered at the scene along with other physical evidence. Brown was taken into custody without incident and transported to the Lowndes County Adult Detention Center where she is being held awaiting her initial appearance. This incident remains under investigation. So according to the Gun Violence Archive, a database that collects information about shootings from across the U.S. 87 people have been fatally shot since January 1st. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention said U.S. crime reports suggest that about one in five homicide victims are killed by an intimate partner. While women make up the majority of domestic violence victim statistics, about one in four men report having experienced severe physical violence from a partner during their lifetime. The CDC also added, although the personal consequences of IPV, which is intimate partner violence, are devastating, there are also many costs to society. The lifetime economic costs associated with 
medical services for IPV-related injuries, lost productivity from paid work, criminal justice, and other costs is $3.6 trillion. The cost of IPV over a victim's lifetime was 103767 for women and 23414 for men. There have been other cases in the U.S. where people have been killed during a live stream. Last year, a California man was arrested after he reportedly live-streamed the fatal shooting of his father and stepmother. Irvin Hernandez Flores, 23, was charged with murder over what prosecutors called a horrific premeditated double murder. Jesus Christ. But that's not the first time that, you know, somebody has been murdered on Facebook. I remember um, there was a, a, a woman who shot her boyfriend or husband on, um, and after she murdered him, she took a picture of his body and fucking posted the picture to his profile and, and all her family fucking seen it and shit. But yeah, I remember seeing the photo. He's like kind of just knelt down on, on their kitchen floor and that's pretty fucking intense. So yeah, that's the article for that of Mississippi woman shoots her husband. And so here's the last article that I have for you. This one's a pretty weird, interesting one. But it's so I got this one from Popular Mechanics or while well, Rocky the Collector sent this to me from Popular Mechanics. Ancient mummies from Mexico might be infecting humans. There's a group of mummies in Mexico you may not want to go see, even though they remain on display in Mexico City and have routinely traveled the country as part of exhibits. Not everyone in the country deems them safe. Unlike in the movies, there's no threat of mummies coming back to life. Instead, the unexpected life-causing problems here is the fungal variety. So, we're going to have the last of us soon. Mexico's National Institute of Anthropology and History says the appearance of fungal growth on the traveling display is causing concern about the way the mummies are handled and presented to the public. Known as the mummies of... Oh my god, I'm going to fuck this up. Guanajuato... (laughs) The exhibit made an appearance in the United States in 2009, but it was a recent exhibit in Mexico City showing off six mummies in glass cases that has led the Institute to alert the public, especially considering that they don't know how airtight those glass display cases really are. It is even more worrisome that they are still being exhibited without the safeguards for the public against biohazards, the Institute said in a statement according to the Associated Press. From some of the published photos, at least one of the corpses on display, which was inspected by the Institute in November of 2021, shows signs of proliferation of possible fungus colonies. Deadly fungal infections from mummies certainly aren't common occurrences, but they also aren't unheard of. IFL Science reports that 10 of the 12 scientists present at the 1970 opening of King Casimir's tomb in Poland died within weeks of the event likely from fungi. Holy shit, I never knew that. And this isn't the only example on record. The current Mexican mummy spectacle was never intended as an example in mummification. Experts believe the 19th or 20th century corpses were unintentionally mummified, a possible byproduct of the mineral-rich environment, an airtight, dry underground burial vault, or some other environmental cause. Some of the mummies still have hair, skin, and even preserved clothing, but there's an obvious lack of embalming or an other common mummification products. The mummies have been part of Mexican culture since the 1860s. When the families of the deceased conti- couldn't continue paying burial fees, the bodies were set to be disinterred. Workers who had been planning to remove dusty bones were instead met with fully intact bodies 
which were put on display due to their preserved nature and the ability to attract paying customers to view them. According to National Geographic, early visitors traveled underground to view the mummies, and since 1969, they have been on display in Guanajuato Museum. Fuck, I'm probably going to fuck this up too, because I'm a fucking no-sabo kid. So, uh, Museo de las Momias, <laughs> the Museum of the Mummies. In the early 1900s, the, the poses and marketing of the mummy exhibit took on a distant, distinct horror element. Some of the bodies were positioned with arms folded across chests and jaws in an open position to create the appearance that the mummies were screaming. The display style of these mummies has long drawn social criticism. These are just regular people who are repositories of information about the period they lived in. Harold Cologne, diagnostic imaging professor. They walked these streets. They went to the old market. They shouldn't be a freak show. In February 2020, an effort launched to begin identifying the mummies, but now the social criticisms are joined by health concerns. This should all be carefully studied to see if these are signs of risk for the culture legacy, the Institute statement says, as well as for those who handled them and came to see them. So that's pretty crazy. So now they're starting to just say that they're, because of the, the way that they're improperly displayed, they are starting to get fungus they're starting to grow some fungus and it could potentially harm the public and so i just thought that was a pretty fucking crazy thing i don't know if you're a fan of the last of us uh, either video game or the show I, either of them are good but yeah so that's pretty crazy but that's going to be the last article that's what i have for you so that means that's it for this week in crime and thank you for joining me on another episode of this week in crime of strange talk podcast and so uh i just want to say thank you to rocky the collector uh, thank you for always uh, supporting the show. And so speaking of supporting, make sure you're following me on Instagram at Strange Talk Podcast. And uh, if you're interested in sending me some news articles that you happen to come across or just a fucking interesting case that you want me to just discuss, you can uh, send it to me via my email at strangetalkpodcast at outlook.com. Again, what's that email? That's strangetalkpodcast at outlook.com. And so thank you for supporting the show by listening to this. And if you want to support the show more, you know, the best way to do that is to just enjoy every episode that I, I kind of bring out for you guys and just kind of word of mouth. Just if you truly enjoy this podcast, because without you guys, this show wouldn't even be anything. But um, if you do enjoy what I do bring to the table, then go ahead and, you know, get your friend, family, neighbor, whatever the fuck you want, and just let them know about Strange Talk Podcasts and just get it out to the world oh also too so over the weekend um i happened to take my daughter to go watch the mario brothers movie and it's actually a really fucking good movie so yeah do that guys after you guys listen to this episode or just listen to it while you're driving in the car on the way to watching the super mario mother the super mario brother movie because it's fucking amazing but as always stay strange thank you for listening i love you bye bye